0: The following resources from LMPC.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all if you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org give
1: please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 24 through chapter 3 verse 11 Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, in his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketamoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace saying, let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither right nor left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Eshaw who live in Seir, and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I go over Jordan unto the land that the Lord has given our God. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. And he, then he might give them to you his hand, as he does this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, and he and all his people to battle at Jehaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Oer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all unto our hands. Only the lands of the son of Arnon did you draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok, and to the cities of the hill and country, Whatever our Lord hath God, our God has forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Indria. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord, our God gave into our hand, Og also the king of Bashan and all his people. And we struck him down until no survivor left. And we took his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. 60 cities, the whole region of Argob, and the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities fortified with high walls, gates and bars besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to the destruction of every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called, Mount Her- called Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites called it Sinir all the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salika and Indria, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of Rephim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. It is not in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Nine cubits was its length, four cubits was its breadth, according to the common cubit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: Well, good morning again. Uh, add my welcome to my previous welcome. Um, again, my name's Aaron. Uh, I'm about just a shade under four cubits tall, according to the common cubit. Um, but uh, a lot to address in this passage. I'm going to try and be faithful. And hit all of it uh, as, as much as I can. But let me pray, and we're going to jump right in because we have a shortened sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, uh, your inerrant and infallible word. I pray that we would um, humbly listen this morning to it. Would you teach me? Would you teach us as we come before it? And uh, would you help me faithfully address all that's here before us um, in a way that reveals the glory of who you are? In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I'm a big picture guy. It really helped me. I don't know, sometimes when we go through books, we kind of get dialed in each little little spot. I want to pull back and look at big picture. How do we get to where we are in this moment? Remember, Moses started our story in the wilderness in Mount Sinai below. And they'd been there 40 years. God says, it's time to move into the promised land. 11-day journey up. They come to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the western side of the Jordan. And they're like, Moses, please, before we go in, can we just send some spies and just see what we're up against? And they're, they're nervous already. They send spies in. They come back. Ten were bad. Two were good. You may remember. And uh, they hear these stories around the campfire that night. And it says, Moses, what they heard about from the two bad spies, uh, or sorry, the ten bad ones, is what made, it made their hearts melt within them. Right? This Hebrew idiom for they were terrified. All their courage, all their trust in the Lord, gone. And so they heard three things around the campfire, uh, and it was this. Remember these as we go to this passage. One, the people are greater, which means more than us, and they're taller than us. Secondly, they heard their cities are great and fortified up to the heavens. Thirdly, they heard this, we also saw sons of Anakim. These are people who are taller than the people who are taller than us. They're giants. So they're terrified and they're thinking, how are we ever going to win? Moses responds to this, chapter one, verse 30. He said, the Lord will fight for you just as he did in Egypt. And as he's carried you, as the father carries his son, he carried you through the wilderness to this. So imagine them. The image we have here is of them sitting around uh, the campfire at night. Maybe there's this pillar of fire in the background warming, and they're, they're grabbing freshly baked manna. How are we going to do this? Like, where is God? And they're like, what do we do? Can we trust him? We're all alone out here. All of God's past faithfulness, all of God's current faithfulness sustaining him even there, has not enabled them to trust in God's future faithfulness. It's not enough, they're saying. Saying it's on us now. So God says, turn around. Let's go back. We haven't learned the the lesson yet. We're going back into the wilderness. Um, And he says this, none of the warriors who do not trust me will enter into the land. He sends them back until the generation of warriors who do not trust him have passed away. The people say, wait, wait, okay, we'll fight. We'll go to battle. All right, and he's like, no, no, at this point, don't do it. I'm not with you. Like, no, no, listen, yes, you're with us. Come on, we're, we're obeying. Like, they're trying to control God with their seeming obedience now. Look, we're obeying you. God warns them not to go, but they run off hoping to earn something back through this. Well, have you ever seen someone mowing the lawn and they hit a yellow jacket nest, right? Chaos, panic, it, it's, it, it can be deadly. It is dangerous, but there's, you see them out there, they're smacking themselves in the face. They're hitting their body. They're running till they get stung. They're changing directions. They're, they're swinging, maybe ripping off their shirt. It's chaos. Moses says, that's what the battle with the Amorites looked like. Literally says, like a swarm of bees, they chased them out. And so panicked, fleeing, chaotic, they run back, returning, defeated, and then they head into the wilderness. It says, for another 38 years, until the generation that refused to trust God had passed on. So at the end of that time, the Lord said, long enough, we're going back. But I don't know if you noticed this when we talked about this last week. Look what God does when he brings them back this time. Okay, he's seeking to lead his people. He wants to do it by trust. Trust in his promise, trust in his faithfulness, trust in his goodness, trust in his power to accomplish what he's called them to do. So this time he leads the Israelites back, not to their place of doubting, not to their place of failure in Kadesh Barnea this time. He actually takes them a different route. Did you notice that? Look where he takes them. He says, we're going on a field trip. First stop is the land of Esau, Edom. And God says, you're going to pass through their land, but you're not going to touch it. Why? Because I promised it to them. I drove out the people I've placed in there. Hundreds of years ago, I established these people by promise in this land. So you're gonna pass through that. And then you're gonna go second stop on our field trip, Moab. The land of Lot and his people. And you're gonna pass through there, but you're not gonna take it. Why? Because I promised it to them. This is a people that I have a special relationship with and a promise. And I told them, I'm gonna put you here. And I'm going to keep you here, and I'm going to be faithful to my promise. Now they've walked through two territories. He says, you can buy food and water from them. So they're talking to the Moabites as they exchange, maybe like, how did you get this fertile land? It's amazing. They're like, well, there were these giants before, and there were these cities fortified to the heavens, but God drove them out, and he placed us here, and he sustained us. And they're like, oh, Oh, God has walked them through their doubts and says, I am trustworthy. I am good. I'm giving you a visual tour. How kind. How loving of God to give them visible evidence and proof of his promise-keeping power. He says, I'm trustworthy. The way I kept my promise to Esau hundreds of years ago, I'll keep my promise to you. The way I've kept my promise to Moab hundreds of years ago, I will keep my promise to you even when there are giants and high walls before you. And so now the Lord God brings them to the edge of the land he's promised. And as we look at this, we're going to break this passage into two parts. We're going to look at how God delivers victory for his covenant people. But we're also going to look how God is is, um, enacting judgment on unrelenting evil. And, And I'll bring in some passages to show why we're saying that. But first... Let's look at the victory. Moses sends messengers to King Sion with a reasonable, I think it's probably kind of a believable request, right? They just walked through two lands where all they did was buy food and water. They didn't touch anything, anybody. They just, they passed through and they're like, we just like to do the same, safe journey. We would love to support your local economy. We have, we've got gold from Egypt here. Like this is is a win-win mutual relationship. Um, But Moses says that Sion refused to let them pass by. So there's two things at play here. Uh, And this is one of the first big problems we kind of address in this passage. Um, First of all, one thing at play is human responsibility. Okay, the Amorites had driven out, remember they'd driven out these little Israelites? Smaller than them, fewer in number. And it says it was like watching bees on honey. And so, and I don't know how old Sion was when that happened. It was 38 years before. Maybe he was a kid at the time. Maybe he was a warrior. But I'm sure he's heard the stories over and over how they ran, like swinging in chaos. And he's like, there's no way we're letting these people pass through. Um, He refuses. And it says he brings out all of his people. Listen to that. He brings out all of his people. I remember studying World War II, like as the Nazis are about to invade Britain, they said Britain had taught all their people, like we will fight for every inch of soil. Pick up your kitchen knives, grab your pitchforks. We do not relinquish an inch without fighting to the death, right? We have different conceptions of warfare. He says all of his people came out to fight against them. And he is fully responsible for that decision. But also we see on the other side of this, That God hardened Sion's spirit. He made his heart obstinate. How do we make sense of that? Um, Moses doesn't mention that in in the book of Numbers. In the book of Deuteronomy, when when his focus here is on the divine power and purpose of God, he brings that out. Now, this isn't just some sort of like after-the-fact over-spiritualization of a moment to give God credit, nor Is it on the other extreme, God manipulating like a puppet King Sion? But listen to how commentator Chris Wright says it. He says, It is characteristic of Deuteronomy and the Hebrew scriptures generally to affirm with equal strength the divine will and purpose and the human responsible choice. He says, History is the mysterious combination of both, neither operating independently of the other, and you're gonna see that throughout this text and throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is gonna bounce back and forth between divine action and human responsibility. It says, verse 31, God says, "'I have begun to deliver, you have begun to conquer. "'The Lord delivered him, we struck him down,' in verse 33." Verse 34, "'We took all his towns,' verse 36. "'God gave us all his towns.'" This is divine will and purpose mixed with human responsibility. We're going to see that throughout this passage, throughout the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to see here the victory was total and complete. Every city from the north all the way to the southern border. Look what Moses adds in verse 36. There was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. So like the source of their fear, the express source of their terror and distrust in God, he says was proved to be nothing for the Lord. He's proven himself trustworthy according to his promise, as he was to Esau, as he was to Lot. So then the very same way, they turn north. They go to the great King Og. Now, King Og is still a mythological figure in this region. He lives in the underworld, they believe. He was, he was such a powerful and terrifying king that he, his reputation is a legend still today. This is a giant of a man, um, King Og, and so they go up against King Og and all of his people as well come out against the people of Israel to fight. And the Lord said, do not be afraid. I've given them into your hands. Again, the victory's total. It's complete. It says over 60 cities, all of their cities, describing them, chapter 3, verse 5, they're fortified, with walls, with high walls, with gates and bars. Again, facing all of our fears, God proved to be greater. And so he ends the story with uh, describing the size of King Og's iron bed, right? It is such an odd fact thrown into the midst of this all, but think about what he's saying. This iron bed, which is nine cubits high and four cubits wide, that would be about 13 and a half feet by six feet. This guy was a giant. It reveals just this massive size. And he, he's clearly showing that all of the circumstances that caused God's people to fear and to not trust have now been conquered by the Lord. And then he, at the time of this writing, the bed was actually still on display in the Ammonite capital in, in Rabbah. And he says, check my truthfulness. Go and see the magnitude of God's victory here. You can see it. It's still on display. All right, so God delivers victory for his people, but there's actually far more going on here than just the Israelite story. So the passage reveals, I mean, did you notice that God's been dealing personally with the people of Esau? God's been dealing personally with the people of Lot. He's obviously dealing personally with Israel, but there's also a story and a history with the people of the Amorites. And what's become a time of victory for the Israelites is simultaneously a time of judgment for them. Um, we're going to look in the rest of, this, of Deuteronomy and, and bring in scripture to, to show you what I mean here. Look at what Deuteronomy 9 says. Chapter 9, verse 4, God says this Don't say in your heart, after the Lord God has thrust them out before you, don't say it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. because it's, It's because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is driving them out before you. So it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart you're gonna possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So God is delivering judgment here on unrelenting evil through the Israelites. In the same way, we know in a few hundred years, He's actually gonna bring judgment on the Israelites through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians. Um, And so this is where we're gonna address the other huge problem in this passage. There's no fully satisfying answer to the questions in your minds of like, no survivors left behind? Like that is a huge stumbling block as as people study through the Old Testament. And so we're gonna start to address that question this morning and we'll build out this answer as we go through Deuteronomy. but I'm gonna give you all the cultural and historical context that I can to start our our addressing that. Let's look back at Genesis 15, verse 16. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham the Israelites are gonna return to this land. It's actually, he makes that in the Amorite kingdom. That's where they were when he made his promise to Abraham. He said, 400 years, I'm gonna bring your people back here. But then he says this, but the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's not yet full. And so what was their iniquity? What, it says it has not been filled up to the full measure. Well, we know this is the region of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was found kind of on the, the eastern southern uh, part of the Dead Sea. Um, they say it's our only cultural uh, glimpse that we have into this region of what the culture was like was Sodom and Gomorrah. We're one night we get to spend in Sodom. And what do we see? We see one of the most disturbing accounts of an entire community turning and assaulting, exploiting, violating, and murdering two young girls. One night in Sodom its the only cultural glimpse we get. And we remember God saying, if there are just ten righteous, I will withhold my judgment but none can be found. And it says God holds back his judgment for another 400 years as the iniquity grows and intensifies. Another place we can look for insight into this culture is Leviticus 18. So the Lord's speaking to Moses, he's about to give them the set of laws and he says, speak to the people of Israel, tell them, do not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Don't do it. But then he goes on to list things. If you go home today and read Leviticus 18, maybe you'll have the same response I did. You start going down and it gets to be so specific and profane. You're like, I don't think you need to say that, God. I don't think anyone would do that. But he, he's listing out things. You're thinking, There's, why are you saying that? Everyone knows that, right? Well, I was on one of our youth trips and I gave... What I thought was a pretty thorough and protective set of rules and guidelines for our trip. Um, Pretty inclusive. Turns out I was completely wrong. Turns out what I should have been saying were things like this. Thou shalt not put metal pots into a microwave to make mac and cheese. Turns out uh, mom had been making it all his life, never had any idea about that. Thou shalt not capture federally protected marine life. And seek to raise it as a pet in the bathtub of your condo. Another rule I sh- should have put down. Uh, don't throw slices of bread from your third-story balcony on the cars of people you don't know. They don't like it. Like, just ridiculous things I never thought I would have to say. But the point I'm trying to make is you, if you read Leviticus 18, it lists things that get to be so specific and profane you think it doesn't need to be said. Why is God listing those things? Because that's what's been happening for 400 years in the land of Canaan. He says, don't do like the Amorites. Don't do all of these things. Don't do these incestuous exploitation of every possible family relationship. He literally says, don't murder your children. Don't sacrifice them. Archaeologists have uncovered extensive evidence of this evil in the land of Canaan. It forbids bestiality. The Lord bookends it all by saying, to let you know that this is happening. He says, verse 24, don't make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all of these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. So that's a little of the context as we begin to address what's going on in this world pre-Ten Commandments. We live in a world that's been heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian ethics that even give us a lens to question these things. But most importantly, I invite you, remember what was God's call for Israel? Think about what he was doing. Why is God putting them right in the middle of the known world at this time? He said, I wanna make you a light. For all the nations, so that all might see the Lord is good and the Lord is God. Remember where he placed them. Below them is this giant empire of Egypt. To the north and east are the the empires of Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. They're on the Mediterranean Sea, connecting to what would become Greece and Italy and Gaul, where the Germanic tribes are. If anybody wants to trade with these massive empires, they travel right through Israel the whole world's gonna come to you. And they're gonna see a people that loves their children, that cares for them, that honors each other's relationships, that, that is about human flourishing, that serves the one and only God. And they're gonna say, I wanna live here. I wanna know your God. I wanna honor and serve him. I wanna be part of this. That's what God has called the Israelites to. Moses, Deuteronomy, is telling the story of a promise-keeping God, a God committed to human flourishing who loves us, who longs to lead us by trust in his goodness, trust in his power, a God who relates to us with incredible patience and long-suffering. I saw a quote this week. It said, the best way to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them. And Solomon would write hundreds of years later, living in this land in the fullness of God's promise, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning so thankful that you have committed to relate to us according to your promises. Instead of our performance, would you strengthen our faith, our faith this morning as we see your faithfulness throughout these passages? Lord, I ask that your past faithfulness and your current faithfulness would give us courage and hope as we seek to trust you with the future. Lord, as I studied this week, I continually thought it is no wonder that Jesus quoted Deuteronomy more than any other book as he rested and reminded himself over and over that you are and always have been trustworthy and faithful to your promises, even in the hardest of callings. Lord, I ask you to meet with us now as we prepare to come to the table together, remembering and resting in your greatest victory of all, the conquering of sin and death for us forever. Would you be with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.